help with the music tonight. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and we will be looking at this next stanza, verses 97 through 104. We just read them together, and we will uh, dive into this passage, and uh, I hope that uh, this series has been a blessing to you. I have enjoyed working uh, through this great chapter, and it has been a joy to deliver these messages as we have gone stanza by stanza through Psalm 119. Now, many of us probably have a favorite suite of some kind. I don't know if you want to identify yourself in any way, shape, or form tonight and say what your favorite suite is. Maybe you like to go to the fair and you like to waste your I mean, you like to spend your money on cotton candy and you have something that melts in your mouth and you have nothing to show for it, right? Or uh, maybe you like elephant ears. Uh, maybe you have a sweet tooth for chocolate. Uh, I know for me, my go-to candy bar is either a Snickers or a Payday. And uh, yeah, amen, amen, yes. We're kindred spirits in more ways than, than one. <laughs> but we have maybe a favorite uh, sweet that we enjoy and it, it could be a weakness, it could be something that we're even not supposed to eat because it's bad for our health, or the doctor has told us no, or our spouse has said no. Uh, I remember in Africa, uh, when I was on a mission trip, of course, I did not get much American-tasting food. It was very, very limited. Occasionally, I would have a meal over at the missionary's house, and she was a great cook, but she would often cook an African or an Indian delicacy. We had lots of curry, hot curry. I can't have hot curry anymore. It will haunt me. But uh, we had lots of Indian food, lots of curry. But you know how when you miss a certain food and you get a craving for it? And for just a short while, there was this little convenience store at this one stop just outside Nairobi. And one day, we were in there picking up some things, and they had Hershey's Kisses with almonds. Oh, wow. I grabbed a bag of those, and I devoured them within like two days. And uh, then we went back again, and they had some more. And just for a short time, I don't know how many weeks, they had Hershey's Kisses with almonds, and then all of a sudden, they disappeared. But that was the closest to American candy that I could get Nothing else was the same. It was either bland or it was just, it was British. A lot of British imports there in Kenya. And the British just don't know how to have good desserts. But a lot of bland stuff. And that, those Hershey's Kisses with almonds, they were the closest thing that I could get to American food. And to this day, I love Hershey's Kisses with almonds, but I'll still take a Snickers or a Payday. But we have a sweet something, a sweet food that we enjoy. And we see in this psalm, in this stanza, subtitled Mem for the Hebrew letter, Mem, and we see in verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is the word of God sweet to us? We'll look tonight at the word of God as we have been working our way through this great psalm, the Mount Everest of the Bible, and we will hopefully have, in a sense, a a greater taste, a greater thirst, a greater hunger for the sweetness, the satisfying sweetness of the Word of God. We see, first of all, in verse 97, O how love I thy law, it is my meditation 
all the day. We need to love God's word. It is a characteristic of a true believer that there is a desire for the word of God. A person who has no desire, no hunger, no thirst for the word of God is probably not a genuine believer. If there is nothing there that has any kind of inward appetite, spiritual appetite for God's word, for the truth of God's word, then there's a good possibility that that person isn't truly born again. A truly born again Christian, a true Christian, a true believer will have an appetite for the word of God. Now it may get suppressed. We may grieve or quench the Holy Spirit and there may be periods of time where we struggle in our walk with the Lord and our desire for the word of God, but there's still somewhere Even if it's somewhat suppressed, there is still a desire and a hunger to some degree for the Word of God that's in the heart of every true believer. Just as a baby is desiring uh, the, the mother's milk, the formula, the, the food that it needs to sustain its life, so we should have an appetite for the Word of God. A spiritual appetite. As a genuine believer, we should have within us, every every true believer has within them, an appetite for the Word of God. And again, it may be sometimes suppressed by sin or by a broken fellowship with the Lord. There may be some issues that we are dealing with. There may be uh, some sort of discouragement or time of trial that sometimes gets us down and we're not asking for wisdom like we should, as we learned about this morning in James and chapter 1 and verse number 5, even during our times of trial, we're to ask God for wisdom. We find that the wisdom of God's word helps us through our trials, our tribulations, and our temptations. But sometimes we do have our appetite suppressed by worldly treats, if I can say it that way. Just like we've told our kids or grandkids, or we've been told growing up, don't eat that candy, don't eat whatever it is before dinner, before the meal. We've probably all heard it, or we've all said it, and I've been guilty of sneaking a snack, sneaking a treat, and then I'm not able to finish my meal at dinner, and then my mom and dad have questioned me. Did you eat something when you weren't supposed to? Did you sneak something? I would come home from school, and I was often very hungry, and My mom would put limits on me, and I would try to get a snack in, and then I'd have to wait for dinner, which seemed like forever, even though it was just a few minutes after my dad got home from work. Uh, But I'd come home from basketball practice, and I'd be starving. And there are times where we suppress our appetite, or sometimes we're sick, and our appetite isn't there. We know something is wrong, usually, right? If our appetite isn't there, then usually that's an indication that something's wrong. And sin can suppress our appetite and dampen our love for God's word. But a true believer has an appetite for God's word, and we should continually be wetting that appetite, desiring. As we grow in our relationship with the Lord, we will find ourselves loving God's word more. And as we love God's word more and meditate upon it more and apply it more, then we love God more. And it's wonderful how those two work together. As we love God, we desire His Word. As we desire His Word, we grow in our love for God and our knowledge of God. And it's a wonderful uh, way in which God uh, grows us as believers. 
and keeps us close to him. I don't often put uh, long quotes up on the screen, but I do think that Charles Spurgeon says this so well that I wanted to put this quote up on the screen and read it for us tonight. The law is God's law, and therefore it is our love. We love it for its holiness and pine to be holy. We love it for its wisdom and study to be wise. We love it for its perfection and long to be perfect. Those who know the power of the gospel perceive an infinite loveliness in the law as they see it fulfilled and embodied in Christ Jesus. And I thought Spurgeon put that so well in speaking of our love for the word of God. And then we see that word meditation once again. And I remember evangelist Mike Schrock back in the spring, I think this is the verse he had us memorize. And he would call out, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. And we worked on that verse, I think, every service as he preached, before he preached. And we see the importance of meditation once again, dwelling on, thinking about, considering. We see in Colossians 3 and verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of God should be at home in our hearts. There should be a special dwelling place in our hearts and our minds for the word of God. Does that mean we walk around and all we do is quote the word of God everywhere we're at and we're just flipping through Bible verses all the time. Is that what it means? No, we have things that we have to do at work. There are things that we have to do at home. It doesn't mean that we walk around like some of the ultra-Orthodox Jews and put the Bible verses in phylacteries and tie them to our heads or tie them to our wrists or the various places that they put them. It's not speaking literally that we put boxes of memory verses on our heads, though it might do us some good to have a scripture memory program. Uh, maybe an app on your phone or maybe some Bible verses on a card or three by five cards. But the idea of having a mindset that is oriented toward and revolves around and is dwelling on and is considering the word of God. So as we're going about our day and we're faced with various decisions and we get that phone call, we get that email, we get that text and we're having to deal with a situation or there's a temptation that arises The word of God ought to come to our hearts and to our minds in helping us through that decision or in that particular moment or helping us overcome that temptation. As we saw with Christ our Lord in Matthew chapter 4, every temptation he met with the word of God. We should be dwelling on, considering, and meditating upon the word of God. That is part of our love, how we show our love for God's word. But also we see that God's word gives wisdom. God's word gives wisdom. We'll see in the bulk of this stanza, we'll see a few ways in which we seek God's word and find wisdom for dealing with particular groups of people or for understanding, for wisdom in certain situations. Let's look at verse 98. Thou through thy commandments... Hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Wiser than my enemies. It's interesting here that there are enemies that he is having to deal with. We see this common theme having to deal with opposition, having to deal with those who persecute, having to deal with people who are against him. 
And again, we're assuming that David is the psalmist. David could be referring to Saul, who was chasing him in the wilderness. He could be dealing with the Philistines. He could be dealing with the rebellious son, trying to overthrow the, the throne. He could be dealing with any number of enemies who are opposed to him. And he says, Through thy commandments thou hast made me wiser than mine enemies. The enemies of God come against Christians with worldly thinking, with wrong philosophies, with the twisting of truth, with, with deception, with lies. Persecution will come sometimes with outright, bold-faced lies. We see with Stephen, we see with some of the martyrs throughout church history, things that were said, things that were done, that were clearly unjust, that were lies against, and there were uh, policies or there were decisions in the case of Saul persecuting Stephen there as the Sanhedrin condemned Stephen to death and the stones began to fly and they would take the tunics, the, their outer robes off, and they would put them at the feet of Saul who was breathing out threatenings and slaughter, desired the murder of Christians. We don't know exactly what the psalmist was up against, but he said as he's dealing with his enemies, he found that in the word of God, he had wisdom for dealing with his enemies for dealing with their wrong ideas, with their lies, with their wrong teachings, with their persecutions. And we're seeing in America, and we see it in other parts of the world, but we're seeing a political apparatus that is designed to persecute us as Christians, to remove us, to destroy us, to ostracize us, to relegate us to some obscure place, or maybe even prison. But the wisdom that these wicked politicians, these false teachers, the wisdom that they are using against us is a worldly wisdom. It is a wisdom that is foolishness with God, and it will ultimately fail. We have to remember that. And we have the truth. We have the word of God. And we are to be wise in the things of God. They might be wise in the things of this world. And they use the wisdom of this world for ungodly means. They resort to all kinds of wicked tactics and the schemes of the devil. And we know that there is a spirit of Antichrist that's already in the world. They resort to false witness, to manipulation, to lying. But we don't have to resort to those tactics. Does that mean that we just become a doormat and let them bring injustice? No, I think we take every reasonable, legal, proper means to stand up for what is right. I think that we have every right to go to Alliance Defending Freedom or to one of these other Christian Law Association or other legal means to protect our freedoms. But ultimately, if all those measures fail and persecution comes, we still answer with the truth. We still stand for the truth. We still 
operate according to the principles and the commands, the promises of the Word of God. We don't resort to the world's tactics, to worldly thinking. We see here the psalmist saying that he has enemies. They are ever with him. But through God's commandments, he finds wisdom to deal with them. Wisdom to answer their false accusations. Wisdom to answer their false accusations in the right spirit and in the right disposition. And sometimes that's the hardest thing, isn't it? I mentioned this morning about, and this is a very, very mild illustration to what many people in the world deal with, or maybe even you deal with in your job or wherever the Lord has you. But I remember as a kid and having to deal with this particular classmate who was constantly, it seems like, either bullying me or just giving me a hard time, just trying to make my life miserable, and sometimes even deliberately putting temptations in front of me and being at the lunch table, he would often throw in innuendos and bring up wrong subject matter and kind of dare everybody at the table to go along with him. And I would, and sometimes another classmate would have to speak up or walk away or go to a, sit at a different, different table or literally sometimes, I remember one time he was being particularly belligerent and I, I got up and I, and, I, and I said something to him and I stood alone for a few moments because nobody else would stand up to him and I had had enough. That's a very mild illustration. But I had to work through those situations as a kid and my mom and dad, I'm thankful, pointed me to the scriptures and I had to learn at a young age, how am I going to respond to an enemy? How am I going to respond? What's my spirit going to be? Do I take him out behind the, do I get a bunch of my buddies and go out behind the school building one day and beat him up? Was that the right response? Thankfully, I never did that. Um, but, you know, there, there are ways in which we sometimes resort to worldly tactics, worldly means, instead of appealing to God and to his wisdom. And it doesn't mean that we don't defend ourselves. It doesn't mean that we become a doormat and we let people walk all over. It doesn't mean that we don't take legal uh, means. We're thankful for an Eric Miller here in the state who I've called on several occasions working through particular matters. And I remember in being a principal of a school, and I remember when social emotional learning was first introduced into the curriculum. And we, we didn't accept it. We, we refused it. And I remember calling Eric Miller, and I said, you, have you seen some of the, the standards in SEL? And uh, we talked about it. And I said, I think this is a dangerous thing. I think SEL is a way in which they're trying to get their foot in the door to promote LGBT and other uh, worldly uh, humanistic ideas. And uh, sure enough, we're seeing around our nation, SEL has become a kind of a Trojan horse, so to speak, in some schools, and they're using that to promote LGBT and uh, other things that would be diametrically opposed to the truth, to the Word of God, that we would never want our children to be exposed to. We've got to take the necessary precautions But ultimately, it is with the wisdom of God. It's with the truth of his word that we give an answer. And then we see also in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Now, I have heard so many school kids through the years try to use this verse. Sometimes jokingly, 
sometimes kind of in a smart aleck way, see, I have the right to disobey my teacher. I am justified in my brattiness. I am justified in my rebellion because I know better than my teachers do because I love the law. You know, that pious kind of snarky attitude that sometimes school kids have. I've heard this, this verse taken out of context. But what is he saying? Okay, we have to understand that what the psalmist is ultimately referencing is that you can consolidate all of the understanding, the wealth of knowledge that has been accumulated through all the years. And he even addresses this in verse 100 when he talks about the ancients. And they kind of go together. This idea that we can accumulate all the knowledge of all the ancients, of all the teachers and all the PhDs and all the intellectuals and all the philosophers, and we can consolidate all of their knowledge and we can explain everything that there is to explain in the world and we have the answers for all a man's problems. And if you just give enough tax money and you just allow enough political policies to be put in place and consolidate enough power in the right bureaucratic committee or group or individual, then all of the problems of the world can be solved. And the psalmist is saying baloney with that. The psalmist is saying all of that accumulated wisdom, all of that accumulated knowledge, all of that historical knowledge that goes back, and we can talk about the, the naturalist system, the secularist system, the evolutionist system, it doesn't matter. There could be facts, there could be knowledge, there could be explanations, but if it is absent, a fear of God, a knowledge of the holy, and a biblical worldview, then it is going to end up with the wrong conclusion because it's starting at the wrong premise. And he's saying, I have more understanding than all of these unbiblical teachers, all of these secularists, all of these unscriptural teachers, I have more understanding, I have more discernment, I have more biblical knowledge than all of them. No matter how smart they say they are, no matter how many degrees they have after their name, no matter how much experience they have in the classroom, if they come to the evidence with an anti-God, anti-Christ, unscriptural worldview, then they're going to end up wrong. They're going to be in the wrong place because they started with the wrong perspective, the wrong viewpoint. There used to be a room at the Creation Museum, one of the first exhibits as you walked in, and it showed two scientists, two archaeologists, two paleontologists, whatever their title is, working on the same fossil. And they explained in that room that the one was a secularist, a naturalist, an evolutionist, and he came to a completely different conclusion than the, creation, the creationist looking at the same fossil, using the same dating methods all, and all that, and they came up with two different conclusions. One said there was a flood after God created the world. The other one said this was millions and billions of years. And the psalmist is saying they can come with all their knowledge, they can accumulate all of their wisdom, they can put all these degrees after their last name, but if they do not submit to the authority of the word of God, if they don't come to these facts from a biblical worldview, with a submission to the truth, a submission to God, then they will be wrong. And I have more discernment, he says, than the ancients, than the teachers, because 
of my understanding, my discernment that comes from the wisdom of God, that comes from the word of God. I think of a Daniel in the Old Testament who saw the wisdom of God far beyond the selfish, worldly wisdom of dictators and kings and emperors and temporal kingdoms. He saw the wisdom of God looking even to the future and even into eternity. He saw the kingdom of God, though he was faced in the literal day-to-day work, the kingdom of darkness, and yet he looked to the wisdom of God, and God blessed him, and God was with him. I think of Proverbs 26 and verse 16, where we read that the sluggard is wiser in his own conceit than seven men that can render a reason. Have you ever met these kinds of people? I know specifically the sluggard. I would use this with young people sometimes who wouldn't do their schoolwork. And I would say, you can give me every excuse in the book. It used to be the dog ate my homework, right? Now it's the printer doesn't work. I ran out of ink. The teacher didn't send me his or her email. Or I sent the email, but the teacher didn't get it. On and on and on it goes. I uploaded it, but for some reason it got lost in cyberspace. All those excuses. And I would deal with young people. I would deal with kids who wouldn't wouldn't get their schoolwork done. And I would use sometimes this proverb. And I would say, you can have more excuses than any person who can render a reasonable explanation. And ultimately, it's what? To excuse your laziness. To excuse your own selfishness. To excuse your own narrow view of how everything should just revolve around you and everybody should just get out of the way and do everything your way. And it ultimately is a very selfish way of living. And the wisdom of God gets us beyond that. The wisdom of God takes us outside of ourselves. And we see God and we see the eternal and we see Christ preeminent. And we set our affections on things above and seek first the kingdom of God. That is ultimately what the psalmist is saying here. His understanding, his discernment comes from the word of God. And he has a greater understanding of the world and how things work and how to live. Because he is applying the truth of God's word to his daily life, to his living. I can't help but think even, and I'm not here to necessarily pick on the on Judaism, but I've, and, and I'm, not, I'm not an expert on these things, but uh, there, there was uh, an article that I read this week, and uh, it's written by a Christian man. I want to share a little bit of this with you. And the, the philosopher, the historian, is, is a Jew. It's an Israeli historian and philosopher by the name of Yuval Harari. And the article was written by a, a, a Christian a Bible scholar. And he says, occasionally statements get made by important figures that, for individuals like me, a Christian ethics professor, uh, they do a great service. They accidentally say what they truly mean with little possibility of confusion or misinterpretation. They reveal their underlying worldview. They do not disguise their beliefs. In an act of intellectual transparency, some say out loud the unvarnished truth, even if by accident. And he says this is an act of public service. It's a way in which, uh, in a sense, the general revelation comes out even in an unsaved person. This is a, a Jewish historian philosopher now 
And he is known for forecasting the future of scientific and human advancement. So he's a brainiac, lots of knowledge, lots of wisdom, worldly wisdom, knows a lot of facts, historian, philosopher, and he is well known for forecasting the future of scientific and human advancement. Now, it used to be called Twitter, now it's X. So he tweeted, and I don't know what it's called now, you, you X, he X'd, <laughs> he X'd a post <laughs> last week, he posted on X, he, he X'd last week. In that post, Harari showed the reality of a worldview that neglects God as the foundation of morality. In Harari's own words, he stated, now listen to this, I know this is a little, um, it's, it's a little above us, <laughs> I had to digest this, but let's, let's think about what he's saying here. From a biological perspective, nothing is unnatural. Whatever is possible is by definition also natural. A truly unnatural behavior, one that goes against the laws of nature, simply cannot exist. So it would need no prohibition. Think about that for a minute. He is saying... That unnatural behavior is not immoral. Because we basically all define our own, our own morality by biological processes. So if you think about what he's saying, none of us are responsible for any immoral or wrong behavior of any kind. Because it's all just the result of biological accidents chemical processes, genetic defects. It's all the result of natural processes. So how do you then define morality? Here's a man who is a well-recognized professor of history and philosophy, who is a Jew who is, as best I know, at least to some degree, a believer in Judaism, I don't know how secular, sounds like very secular, but he would be a Jew who has much learning, much intellect, much education. And the writer of this article, this Christian, this Bible scholar, he refers to Harari's statement as philosophical gobbledygook. And I think that's a pretty good explanation. But ultimately, this man is trying to say that there is no morality. It is all just the result of biological, natural, evolution-type processes. But we look in Psalm 119, in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditations. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. We can respond to an obvious, glaring falsity, untruth, because we know that God created this world, designed this world, revealed to us his truth in his word, codified it in a written book, the Bible, authoritative, inspired, infallible, inerrant. So God has every right to define and to declare what is right and, what is right and wrong, what is truth and error, what is moral and what is immoral. We don't get the privilege privilege or the rights 
to define our own morality, our own standard of right and wrong. We must submit to God's. And here is a philosopher, a historian, who is ultimately rejecting the truth of the word of God. We would consider him a very smart man. We would consider him a historian, a philosopher of great intellect. But he's dumb. If I can say that in a respectful way, spiritually. Yes. Sure. Okay. Yes. He's going to set up a worldview to justify his immorality. Yes. Yes, right, right. He wants AI to rewrite the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Artificial intelligence, and now there's artificial intelligence that is already corrupted because it's ultimately its intelligence comes from where? Sinful man, and it's artificial intelligence. Good point. So the accumulated wealth of man's knowledge is still to be submitted to the authority of the word of God, to the truth of God's word. We don't just think that we are smart enough. We don't just think that we have all of the answers within ourselves. We find the answers from God through his word. And we submit ourselves and our ideas. And many of our thinking is stinking. And a lot of our ideas just need to be cast out. And we need to submit our ideas and our thoughts and desires to the word of God, to God's truth. And then we see in verses 102, I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. Here he is saying, I have, I'm wiser than my enemies, more understanding than my teachers, understand more than the ancients, submitting all of my knowledge, all of my intellect, all of my desires, everything to the Lord. And he says, what? How am I going to avoid evil? It is by keeping thy word. How do I not depart from thy judgments? By listening to your instruction. Letting God's word teach me. He says, thou hast taught me. One of the things that we as uh, Kelly and I have desired for our children, and this is something that as a coach that I, I, I wanted, and some of you have been in teaching, you've been in places, and as a parent you want this, as a grandparent, we want our kids to be teachable, don't we? We want them to listen, especially to those in authority, to those who are older, to those with more experience, to a boss. If they're not teachable, then eventually they begin to decide for themselves what they believe is right and wrong. And they begin to resist every authority. They begin to fight every rule. They begin to look for their own way. And I, I love how the psalmist, how he brings, even as he says, I understand more, I am wiser than, and he refers to these groups, these enemies, these teachers, these ancients. And where does he come back to? He says, I still have a wickedness in my own heart. I still have a tendency to to walk away from God's word. I'm still a sinner. Yes, I may have more understanding. And he says, I cannot lift myself up in pride. 
Yes, I may have more understanding from the word of God, but I too have to submit myself to the word of God. I must not forget God's word. I must not depart from the word of God. And we see even a humility in the psalmist. And he comes back down to verse 103. Or actually, I'm sorry, verse 104. And he mentions, through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. He says, I want that discernment. So when there is untruth, when there is a false way, I want to be able to identify it and to avoid it. I want to go God's way. I want to follow God's path. I want to do God's will. And we see the psalmist here seeking wisdom that comes from the Lord. And then we conclude with verse 103. I know we're backing up a little bit in the psalm, or in the stanza, but in Psalm 119 and verse 103, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Again, I come back to what maybe we think of in our modern diet as sweet, as what we may have a craving for or a weakness for. I know that there have been some, I don't know, maybe there are some ladies who do this, but I've known some men who have been guilty of hiding candy or certain treats, sweets around the house and in places where their wife uh, cannot find them. Maybe uh, you have been in a home where that has been the case and you know, dad had his secret stash. Sometimes maybe it's mom. But I've known some men who have joked around about having a secret place where they hide uh, their candy, uh, something sweet they're not supposed to eat. They didn't want their wife to find out that they bought. Maybe we have a weakness toward that particular candy or sweet. But we see the psalmist, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And it reminds us of Psalm 19 and verse 10, more, de- more to be desired are they than gold. What is the they referring to? The word of God. He just listed several uh, phrases, metaphors that reference the word of God. And he says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Proverbs 8 and verse 11, for wisdom is better than rubies and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Proverbs 16 and verse 16, how much better it is to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver. It is ultimately God and his word that satisfies. I did a little bit of a study on honey. Maybe Nat knows all these things already. But four health benefits to honey. One, it helps keep your mind sharp. Three teaspoons a day supposed to help sharpen your brain function. It helps suppress a cough. Many of us have probably had a honey and lemon tea or a honey and lemon mixture maybe growing up. I know my mom would give me honey lemon cough drops or a honey and lemon mixture to help with a sore throat or a cough. Honey is supposed to help heal cuts and scrapes. And I will attest to one time when I got stung by a bee, I took some of Nat's honey and rubbed it on the bee sting and it took the sting out, took the pain out. It worked. And then... And there's probably many others, but a fourth one that I read is that it soothes burns. The benefits of honey. Well, isn't there a far more spiritual benefit? I'm thankful for the design of honey and the miraculous and the supernatural way in which bees operate. It's very fascinating to produce honey, which is so good for us. And I understand it never expires. 
um, which even that has a little bit of a, a reflection upon the uh, fact that God's word never expires. God's word uh, lasts forever. But we see the benefits physically of honey, but don't we see the spiritual benefits of the honey of God's word? Yet we don't desire God's word like we should. We don't love it like we should. We don't meditate, it, meditate on it all the day like we should. One of the reasons that we go to church is to draw our hearts and our minds to the eternal. To draw our hearts and minds to God, to who he is. We gather for a purpose higher than ourselves, higher than this earth and all the material, temporal things that this world can offer. We've seen in statistics and surveys that when a dad faithfully brings his children to church, in high percentages, the children continue in their adult years to take their kids to church and to love God and to orient their lives by the word of God. We bring our families to church. We come faithfully, and you are a testimony of God's faithfulness. And it orients our lives toward God. We went to church growing up. It oriented my life and my sister's life toward the word of God, toward God. We saw that it wasn't all about us and our activities and our things and all the things that we did the other six days of the week. We knew that Sunday was the Lord's day. And it was a faithful pattern in our home. And it spoke to my life and to my sister's life. And I've seen it in many others who have made church a priority in it with a not with hypocrisy, of course. I've seen kids where there's hypocrisy in the home and they're dragged to church in a legalistic sense. They become bitter and turn their backs. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about a genuine love for God and desire to be in church and a pattern of faithfulness to church. And it orients the children's lives toward God and to his word. It sets the standard for the home. The home revolves around God and his word and not around me and all the things that I want to do and all my activities. And we have six days that we really, in a lot of ways, have activities for ourselves. And we need to make money, and we need to have downtime and recreation, and I know life gets busy, but when we make the Word of God, the preaching and teaching of God's Word a priority, God blesses that, and God honors that. And it draws our hearts away from ourselves and to the Lord. And we find His Word sweet. In church, we connect with other believers. We serve together in a God-focused activity that draws our attention away from ourselves and orients us toward God and others. Church is not a sacramental or a legalistic activity to check a box or to earn favor with the Lord. It's a place that we want to come to. It's a place that we are drawn to because the Word of God is sweet. It's sweet in our personal lives, and our personal devotions, and our personal daily meditations, but it's also sweet to come together and to be refreshed with God's word on the Lord's day and faithfully making that a pattern of our lives. It orients us and our homes to the Lord and sets our view in our hearts on the eternal, on God himself and who he is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the psalmist whose love for you is so very evident that throughout this psalm speaks of the glories of the word of God that helps us, Lord, to 
find the satisfaction for our souls that can only come from you. And Lord, we thank you for the principles, the promises, the commands of your word that you have revealed to us and in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, that truly brings satisfaction. Lord, may we delight in your word. And Lord, may we have a love for your law and find your word sweet to our spiritual appetite that we might love you more, know you better, and serve you better and share that love for you with others and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as we point them to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.